Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey everybody, this is Dr. John back with the latest episode of the Evolved Caveman Podcast. And I am really honored to have with me today, Monica Guzman, a bridge builder, journalist, and entrepreneur who lives for great conversations sparked by curious questions. She's director of digital and storytelling at Braver Angels, the nation's largest cross-partisan grassroots organization working to depolarize America. She is host of live interview series at Crosscut, co-founder of the award-winning Seattle newsletter, The Ever Gray. And she recently wrote the book, I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. She was named one of the 50 most influential women, pardon me, easy for me to say. She was named one of the 50 most influential women in Seattle, served twice as a juror for the Pulitzer Prizes, and plays a barbarian named Shadrach in her besties D&D campaign. That's Dungeons and Dragons for the, oh, she lives in Seattle with her husband and two kids and is the proud liberal daughter of conservative parents. And I was introduced to her via an article she wrote for the Greater Good Science Center at Cal entitled How to Stay Open and Curious in Hard Conversations, which I fell in love with and had to track you down. So thank you for being here. Oh, of course. Thanks so much for having me. So I was kind of smitten with this Dungeons and Dragons because I was I was watching Stranger Things recently and, you know, their Hellfire Club, which is a D&D club. And it brought me right back to my adolescence when I used to play it. And it still kind of cracks me up because my best friend's mom thought I and the game was a really bad influence on him. Mm. So, and then you see that in Stranger Things, right? There's like Newsweek. They're like, this is the devil's game. Mm -hmm. So what's your connection with D&D? Oh my gosh. It, so I've been playing since 2016. So yeah, with the same group of friends, my husband is what's called the dungeon master. So he's the person inventing these scenarios. And then all of us, there's five of us, we're sitting around a table. We each play characters. And based on the scenario that the dungeon master is giving us, we have to decide what our characters would do. And then we announce an intention of one of our characters, but then we have to roll the dice. And according to how the dice rolls, the dungeon master would announce a good result or a bad one. And it's phenomenal. I, I always thought of it as a fantastic game in terms of imagination, visualization, um, almost theatric, theat- theatricism. Like the, it's, mm-hmm. there's a theatrical component to it. And I, I always thought it was an amazing game and, and I miss it. So anyway. I, oh, it's great. I, I have to tell you. Uh, so I've played several characters now. Right now I'm playing Shadrach, who is this human barbarian. And barbarians are known for being sort of brute strength you know, and, and often very ragey You're the people. Tank. I am the tank. I'm the one who can take all the arrows and fling them back, you know, uh, which is just so fun. When I was uh, researching my character, because I take that pretty seriously, I want to really embody the characters I play because it's so much more fun that way. I actually reached uh-huh. out to my brother who um, does a good bit of weightlifting and he has, he has like, you know, muscly arms. And I, and I wanted to ask him, <laughs> How would someone with muscly arms walk? How do they sit? And he told me that thing that I didn't know, which is that when you have muscly arms, you can't really have your arms down flat at your sides. The muscles actually Mm -hmm. pull them up a little bit. So when I sit with my friends, you know, I'm this skinny thing. I I pretend that I'm all muscly and I've got like muscly arms and I sit a certain (laughs) way and it's just so fun. (laughs) 
That's awesome. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying life on that level. So I want you to tell me your story. How did you get involved in Braver Angels? That fascinates the hell out of me. And what was the pull of helping people to have these cross-partisan conversations? Mm. So I got involved in Braver Angels in starting in the summer of 2019, where I saw this um, incredible person, John Wood Jr., speak at this conference about race from so from 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 a deep understanding of so many perspectives that I couldn't believe it. I had never heard anyone talk about race like that. So I thought, who is this guy? And it turned out he worked for Braver Angels. What the heck is Braver Angels? And I pick up this pamphlet and I read it. And I just thought to myself, wait a minute, I thought this was impossible. It exists. People are doing this. And Braver Angels has 74 local chapters all across the country of communities of people and towns and cities who get together. They have to each of those alliances, each of those chapters has to have uh, half red and half blue political leadership, liberal and conservative. Hmm. You know, this thing that we think is impossible is being modeled as we speak uh, in all these ways, big and small through Braver Angels. So I, I just had kind of lost some of that hope that, that this could happen. And I thought, man, I wish there was a way that people would just kind of come together and interact and collaborate on depolarizing us. And it turned out it existed. It's Braver Angels. Uh, so that's how I headed to that. And then repeat your, your second question was, I think, more broad. So, yeah, what was the poll of helping people to have cross-partisan conversations? I mean, what was your individual poll? Yeah. Uh, the most personal one was my relationship with my parents. Uh, you read in your introduction <laughs> a line in my bio that uh, I wrote in not really knowing what the reaction would be. And sometimes it's sort of awkward laughter. Sometimes it's tense silence. But where I say that I'm the proud liberal daughter of conservative parents and people go, huh? <laughs> That's not how we tend to speak. This is strange. What's she talking about? And I am. Uh, my parents and I are Mexican immigrants. And in the year 2000, after about a decade in this country, my parents got naturalized as citizens. I was 17 years old, so I was automatically naturalized at that point. And so here we go. You know, now we can vote. And I was going to vote the following year. But my parents uh, were Republicans. And, and I was shocked. Because, you know, I was more liberal and more of a Democrat, but just something in me just sort of figured they would be too. It's that thing that we do where we think people were just going to be the same, but they're not. And so the next 22 years, you know, we're just have just been fascinating collisions and clashes and friction that we add to each other because we're a very unfiltered family. We always say <laughs> what we think. <laughs> it's like one Latino stereotype that totally fits us is we just <laughs> we just blurt it. You know, we just say it. There's just, just not a lot of not a lot of restraint. And so I, I noticed that even in the 2015 presidential campaign, right, when things were getting so tense, they were getting very tense between me and my parents. Extremely. Because I just thought, mom, you didn't raise me to support somebody like the person you're supporting. I don't get it, you know, and, and it got really it got really tough. But even then, when the heat had turned up so high, we were cooking something. We were cooking like understanding instead of burning something with that heat. We were we were not mm -hmm. burning our relationship somehow. And so then I contrasted that with what was going on all around me, where relationships, bridges, understanding is getting burned over and over and over again. And as a journalist, I'm here going, okay, my job is to try to help people understand each other. And I don't think I can do it in a world like this. It's too fractured. I have to step back and do something about it. So I figured, okay, let me, let me write some things down. Let me get, <laughs> let me get a book going. 
because because I had been personally fascinated by this question for some time. Yeah, and when I kind of found out about you and found out what your I guess mission or purpose is, I was immediately taken, and I love it. I mean, Braver Angels, um, the book, and I agree with you, and I think most people would that we live in a polarized, divided, fractured country, really. Mm-hmm. And and I've seen it, and we saw it. You know, I've seen it over the past five, six years where people just can't have these conversations because they get so emotionally triggered and angry and disgusted and indignant that it just shuts everything down. Yeah. So how is, how does curiosity come into this as one of the answers to our divides, political or otherwise? Well, there's a line in the show, Ted Lasso. Maybe oh, you know the show Ted Lasso, I do. right? The 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 what is it? The football coach that goes to goes to England becomes a soccer coach, and mischief ensues. Anyway, but he is a very kind soul, uh, enormously and surprisingly and delightfully kind. And one of the quotes that's become a meme out of that show is "Be curious, not judgmental." There's a mm. scene with darts in that show that delivers that in a beautiful way that I won't go into now. But it turns out that being curious and being judgmental are actually two different modes. When you are purely curious, you cannot also be judgmental. Uh, curiosity, as it's been researched, uh, it's, it's, it's called often the knowledge emotion because there's feeling attached to this craving for knowledge and for learning. So curiosity neurologically is sparked when we are aware of a gap between what we know and what we want to know. And as long as our awareness is on that gap, there's an opportunity there to just go and seek and find and get more understanding. And what happens is you ask, you ask a question, maybe you get an answer, maybe you do some research and whatever you learn just opens up more gaps. And then there's more questions and there you go again, right? So when we have conversations with people with whom we disagree and we approach it with genuine curiosity, meaning we want to close that gap between what we understand and what we don't understand. And we ask questions based on that, then the judgment falls off, at least for some for, for, for a time. And I'm convinced that judgment is reckless without understanding. And, and where we are right now is we're having a lot of conversations based on judgment, where we think we already know everything we need to know about this other person's position. But if you look around, fewer of us are hanging out with people who don't share our ideologies than, than, than ever in modern life. I mean, we're sorting to be far away from people. Blue zip codes are getting bluer. Red zip codes are getting redder. We have to recognize that that's the state we're in and that it is highly unlikely that we fully understand these perspectives, especially also because of the fear and suspicion and toxic division that's all around us. So can we approach those conversations with curiosity? Yes. And if we do, uh, we really will be wiser. Well, and I love the idea of curiosity versus judgment. Curiosity to me is one of the more powerful positive emotions. And I, I see it as pretty easy to activate. It's simply a decision. I, I'm going to tell mm-hmm. myself I am an intensely curious person and I'm curious about other people's stories. Judgment, on the other hand, I look at as uh, there's some sort of thought there fueled by indignance or contempt. That And so kind of there's this anger element to it that I know better than you and you mm-hmm. should be doing this or you shouldn't be doing that. So it already comes in with a preconceived notion. So I, I really appreciate your distinction. And, and so why would you say these um, 
I guess, political divides are so dangerous? Hmm. Oh, where to begin? Where to begin? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think uh, I think about the studies. Um, there's one in particular, but there's been several like it that ask people on one side to estimate, guess at the beliefs on the other. And we're wildly exaggerating how many people hold extreme beliefs. And so one of the ways in which all this is dangerous is too many of us are seeing monsters that aren't there. And when we are more afraid than is justified, I mean, fear is lovely. Fear is great. Fear keeps us alive, you know, but fear turns on different parts of our brains. Fear turns mm. on the, the, the fight or flight, right? And it turns off the part of our minds that would consider and reflect and take time with something. So when we think that there are more monsters out there than there are, um, and we live it more with more anxiety maybe than we need to, um, we, we, we begin to act as if more people are worth attacking and that more, that, that at all costs, at all costs, we need to defeat the enemy. We need to defeat the other side. And so that's what's dangerous is, is we start, we start reacting and we start lashing out, right? But we're not even as divided as we think. Ideologically, we are not that divided, but the animosity, uh, it's called affective polarization. The polarization of, of how we feel about each other is animating so much of our politics, right? So it's dangerous on every level. Um, the individual anxiety that people feel every day in their lives and how that's keeping them from meeting their full capacity or potential or making the world bigger, right? They want to make the world smaller and more comfortable. It goes to our politics, which is becoming very reactionary, right? Mm. Based on this fear and this suspicion, you know, people are actually proposing laws left and right that are based on like, we got to stop that other side from destroying everything. And then, you know, even our institutions, there's a lot of there's a lot of <laughs> movements to sort of do away with that institution or that isn't working for us because that other side, as soon as they get power, they're going to do this. So stop at nothing. And so we erode some of those structures that actually hold us together. Um, so I could go on, but that's just the starter list. Well, thank you for that. And, and I love the idea that no one is irrational to themselves. So we all have reasons for doing, thinking, believing, valuing what we do. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I think of a lot of these. Um, because I'll get clients coming in that are quite conservative. And so I've got to be curious with them about what values underlie that. Right. And, and a lot of those values are fine. Like I totally understand the values and this is just a values conflict in how we see the world. Yep. Yep. And even the values conflicts, uh, I, after doing a good bit of research on, on <clears throat> values, it was, it was eye-opening to me to think, oh my gosh, I've been, I've been looking at this all wrong. Uh, people tend to look across the divide and say, well, they don't share my values. We have different values, but that's not quite right. We have the same universal values. We just stack them in a different order for different mm -hmm. issues. And that's yeah. where the conflict comes. It's not that I hate freedom and therefore I support vaccine mandates, right? Or that I don't care about other people's public health and therefore, you know, I don't, I, I think mandates are terrible. It's, it's, we all care about freedom and we all want everyone to be healthy. It's just that when those two values come into tension with each other, 
you know, there's different ways that policies can reflect a different balance between those values. And they're wrestling with each other constantly. This is where our diversity is a strength. You know, the mm-hmm. fact that people, that somebody comes in and says, oh, you can't, you can't, please don't force me to get vaccinated if I don't want to. Come on. Like that's, what about freedom? You know, what about this? And, 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 and others will say, okay, I, I hear that. Okay. Let's take that. But then let's also balance it with, we got to, we got to destroy this disease before it destroys us. What can we do about that? So we need to have those conversations where, you know, we're able to hear the full truth of people's concerns uh, and the stakes that things hold for them. Uh, but unfortunately, we have the kind of culture and dis- discourse that doesn't allow for that very often. It makes very, very, very little room for genuous, genuine and curious uh, questions about what people bring to the table. Well, and, and thank you for pointing that out about values stacking differently, because I, I look at values, con- or lo- I'll look at like conflict between a husband and wife these days, and I'll always try and break it down to what are the values behind what you're saying or feeling? So for mm-hmm. instance, you know, husband comes home late from work. And this is a very stereotypical example. Mm-hmm. So forgive me. <clears throat> the wife has dinner ready and her top value in that moment is family time. Mm-hmm. That's a really good value. His top value in working late is provider providing for the family. There's no wrong in those two values. It's just at that moment, he was valuing one over the other and it was the flip, the reverse for her. And so I, to me, I try and get curious about what are the values and what's the prioritization there to look at, can I make sense of this? And can I respect the value that they're putting on it as number one, which usually the answer is, yeah, you can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the temptation is to make a judgment. You don't care about our family. That's why you were at work late, right? Or you don't care about my work. You don't care about my ambition and you don't care about what I'm trying to do to support this family. We say those things to each other. And, and that, that's always forgetting. It's not true that they don't care. It's not true. Well, so, but that's what we want to think when we think they're threatening yeah. my value. And so they couldn't possibly share it. And, and you bring up an interesting point because I'm always looking at things also rational versus emotional. So, you know, is our rational mind in charge of us, our thinking analytical mm-hmm. mind, or is our emotional mind in charge of us? And that's calling the shots right now. And I think it's, it seems to me that it's become so much easier in this day and age to get triggered and emotionally reactive. And at that point, you're not asking questions. You're not learning. You're not curious. You're just trying to defend your own position. Right. So how does that distinction between rational and emotional come into mm-hmm. this conversation? Mm, I mean, in in a lot of ways, one of the ways that I think of is rational feels like something you get such a gold star for, you know, we're all rational, aren't we? When we behave irrationally, we did it wrong. And if we're not talking about things that are reasoned and reasonable, then we're doing it wrong. But I think that actually misses what it is to be human. And we're not always rational. We are emotional. And that's okay. Emotions are these sort of internal reactions to when our values or our sense of threat or our concerns are being lit up within us. Emotions are data. They're very interesting, right? And oh, so we can I choose, like you. Yeah, I mean, we can choose to be <laughs> curious about why someone yeah. is angry instead of, I don't know, interpreting it in whatever way we, we want to or saying, well, this is a sign that this conversation's gone south. You know, you're not, you're no longer being rational. It's like, well, hang on. What, what are they doing? If they suddenly behaved differently, um, something some they're really concerned about something what is it 
So I found that one of the, you know, more, I guess, effective ways to diffuse uh, a moment like that, because people tend to think, oh, if someone gets really upset, that's the end of the conversation. It often is. It often has to be. People they take a breath and take a break. Absolutely. But sometimes, sometimes you can say, I didn't realize this mattered to you that much. Can you tell me more? Yeah. You know, and people go, whoa, that's not what I expected. <laughs> you know, um, so you can still come even into emotional moments with curiosity. And in fact, that's a great way to do it. You can do it for yourself as well. Many times I've been in tough conversations and I have sensed myself getting upset. And I always say that like, when you're having a conversation with someone else, you're really always having two. You're having the conversation with the other person and the internal dialogue with yourself. Yeah. And you're always deciding what part of the internal dialogue do I actually want to let this other person see? And every now and then when you're feeling upset, it actually might make sense to say, I want to stop you right there and just let you know that this is really, this is really bothering me. I can tell, I can tell that I'm getting worked up about this. So finish your thought. And then I'd love to tell you what's coming up for me. Okay, cool. Once you name the yeah. emotion, it becomes the content. I, I love what you're saying. And I also think that, um, I mean, you know, I've done anger management for many years. So I think that anger is one of those, can be one of those barriers to civil conversation. Mm -hmm. um, partly because when we're angry with each other, we're externalizing blame and we're just self-defending. Um, and so I, I think part of this is also people doing their own work to look at their emotional triggers and to practice self-soothing so that, you know, you mentioned the voice in your head, right? So we can have this conversation and if it's triggering to me, I can be like, John, take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. Like this isn't personal. This is just about politics. This is just what Monica believes. Mm -hmm. It's not an attack on me because I, I've seen that, um, dynamic mm -hmm. quite a bit now where, if someone's speaking to you or to me in a, uh, let's say, condescending and mm -hmm. irritated tone of voice, for a lot of people, that throws you back it, to the age of, let's say, five. Yeah. Because who else spoke to you in that voice? And it was mom or dad. Yeah. And it can often bring up shame, which completely shuts things down, I would argue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely so, agree. What would you say to people who say they've tried to find common ground with people that they disagree with, and no matter what they do or say, it just doesn't work, so why even bother? Yeah, that, that's, that's tough. And this is where there is no blanket prescription, and, and I'm always very careful to say that, depending on the person, depending on who they are, the identities they hold, and the relationship they see between those identities in the world, um, you know, the role that they feel they play. Uh, in their life and where they find meaning. Yeah. Like trying to talk to someone, you know, who's a little bit different or a lot different can feel impossible. And maybe they have tried. Um, but I mean, a lot of times I'll give you an example, you know, when people, when people say, you know, I've tried, I, I really did. I sat down and I listened. It is, it is tough to really listen to someone. It is tough to approach someone with curiosity. So for example, you know, you might be asking questions of this person and thinking to yourself, I'm being curious because I'm asking questions, but not all questions are curious. Some of them are accusations bundled up in a question mold. Uh, some of them have assumptions baked into the question. Why do you believe something so racist? Some of them um, are very demanding um, instead of exploring and allowing people their space to be who they are. No, tell me why you really voted for that guy. Yeah. 
Um, so there's all kinds of ways. And then to, to your point, condescension, there's all kinds of ways that our, that our questions can feel very condescending, can, can feel like we're coming at this exercise of faux curiosity, right? With a sense of superiority. Um, I'm here, to, you know, I'm just here taking notes. I'm going to the zoo. <laughs> I'm at the zoo and I'm taking notes on these animals, why they act this way. And that's, that's one thing that I've, I've also detected is like, there's an attempt at understanding, but if it, if it's curiosity without empathy, it's voyeurism. So there's also that it's just, it's just actually being genuinely curious requires things like you're going to want to interrupt. You're going to ask a question. They're going to start answering and you're going to want to be like, bleh, 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 bleh. and can you not, can you not? Can you, can you oh, let hard. them talk for a bit longer? Because curiosity, again, curiosity is about the gaps between what you know and what you don't know. If you don't give people the space and time to fill you in on how they see things, there's, there's no gaps are going to open for you at all. And you're going to keep repeating the same questions. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, right? Um, so you have to give people space to give you their own stories. And so then people go, but again, it's exhausting. Like I spoke with my uncle and I did this for like an hour and he never asked me any questions. He was just talking at me the whole time, you know? And that's where I say, people have to be heard in order to hear. And you don't know how unheard that other person feels. You don't know. It might take a long time for them to feel like they can trust that you are genuinely curious and that you have the right intentions at heart. Uh, it might be a kind of a sour relationship or they might have in their head. And I've seen this all the time where people, you know, I'm a conservative. I'm talking to a liberal. I'm a liberal. I'm talking to a conservative. And in my head, that conservative, that liberal is all the worst things I associate with that group. They are not them yeah. as a person. They are every bad thing I associate. That's going to take a while to prove wrong. You know, and that's where we are is we've built these big mountains. We have to climb to each other. Yeah. And, and I think that, Part of it is what's the story that you're bringing to the conversation before you even get in the conversation to your point yeah. where, you know, if, if you're believing that, um, you know, all Democrats are snowflakes and overly compassionate and want to waste all our money versus, you know, all Republicans are racist, neither one of those yeah. is true. Right. But if that's the story that you're telling yourself, it's going to potentially destroy that conversation before it even gets going. Exactly. And it's going to make you so suspicious. Right. And we, we all do this yeah. you know, approach if to take the Republican racist thing. It's like this, this Republican might be a racist. And I, so let me have my radar on real good for anything that might sound racist. Right. And then as soon as I hear something that begins the inner dialogue in my head, oh, you know, and and that's what we do, because because these stories are already nudging us in these directions. And so we're just looking for confirmation. And as soon as we find one little sign, ah, there it is. I knew it. I knew it. You had this evil in your heart the whole time, right? So we do that to each other all the time. And uh, it's not based on the actual content of that conversation. It's based on all the stories we hear elsewhere that's keeping us from even wanting to have these conversations. Yeah, well put. So I, I have a kind of a personal question. I know a, a young man who has become so mistrustful of all media because, mm. you know, all media is biased, which, you know, I, I get that. There's some validity to that. that. Mm -hmm. um, and 
What would you say to someone that's so mistrustful of the media that they no longer take in any new information at all? Mm. Well, I have a question about this young man. Does mm-hmm. he, is there mm-hmm. media that he does trust and just others may not call it the media? I don't know. You know, he used to uh, have a lot of Twitter streams that he would check out. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, he was actually kind of alt right. Um, mm-hmm. And now he's at the point of he doesn't really tune into Twitter, doesn't really tune into any major mm-hmm. news media organizations because they're all biased. And mm-hmm. and it's really <clears throat> like I even tried to have him look at a course at the local JC mm-hmm. and he shot down the whole entire group of courses because he knew who was behind that. Mm-hmm. And and so I'm it's frustrating because it it just the anger and cynicism, I think, just drown out any possibility of taking in new information and changing the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think that this is happening more and more. Um, and oh, this is chilling, but but it's it's part of the, ugh. you know, in history, there's been studies about propaganda. There's been studies about authoritarian kinds of places. And, and one of the strategies is make it all so confusing that no one knows what to trust. Yeah. And you know, it, it's kind of hard. I think it'd be hard to argue that we're not taking steps in that direction. And when, when people just stop, stop trusting anything, it, it because it seems like the smartest thing to do um, because there's, there's reasons to suspect everybody and who can blame them for coming to that conclusion. We are spending so much of our energy attacking and judging their sources. So if you, if you hear it all, all you hear is that nothing is worth trusting. And, and that becomes a rational conclusion. The problem, of course, is that we have to have some way of collectively searching for truth together. And, and these are the things that have broken down without trust. So in my construction of this, you cannot have a collective search for truth without trust. And I think there's a lot of people insisting on, no, we got it. We got to get to the fact. We got to get to the truth. But they're not paying any attention to the need for trust. Instead, it's these other people who don't trust them, don't worry about them. They're dumb. They're, they're, they're idiots. Let's not worry about them. You know, just kick them off the platforms. We'll figure it out. Like, no, you won't. You won't. This society will not have a collective search for truth unless what's collective. And it won't be collective mm-hmm. until there's trust. So work on the trust. But, 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 no, work on the trust. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, and I agree. Yeah. And I think there's been a major breakdown in the trust just socially and within communities and within large populations. And that's one of the big problems I think that we face is mm-hmm. we are so mistrustful in this day and age. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the biggest, I think it's the thing underneath it all. Um, everything's sort of poisoned, you know, beyond that. Now we're always going to have some degree of, of lack of trust. We, we know that, but, but the fact that uh, we are burning so many bridges and, you know, spots at the Thanksgiving table are, empty and not just because of COVID uh, all in some ways, because of, because of the way that we are sorting ourselves to be around people who are like us, it's these rituals that we used to take for granted, like getting the whole family together every Thanksgiving that in some ways become our only, for a lot of people, our only exposure to people with different views, <laughs> you know? So when you, yeah. when you start eliminating those possibilities or you go on social and you say, unfollow me, if you disagree with this, that, or the other thing, what you're doing is uh, like snipping part of the web of trust. Now you would say, 
but, but, but there's nothing to be said here. They've said horrible things to me. Maybe I've said horrible things to them. That all may be true. Um, but when we completely burn the bridge, that's when the possibility of, of someday reconciling becomes really remote. So as I say in the book, the most important thing to do with a bridge is not to cross it. It's to keep it. Even if you don't talk to that person for a while, but you're, you could, that's better than just kicking them out of your life. So, yeah. And, and I think, you know, a large part of this, a large part of a happy, meaningful life is about connection and relationship and building those bridges and keeping them intact. And like I, what comes to mind is a, a man I know who has a coffee mug that says, may the bridges I've burned light my way. Hmm. And, and so there's almost this element of pride wow. in, I don't know, using and abusing other people and just screw yeah. them and just burning the bridges as I go. Wow. And so I, I, it's funny that, you know, we're, some people have come so far from what we're talking about here to I'm having, I have, I'm proud of the fact that I'm a bridge burner. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and a little bit problematic. It is, but, but, you know, before judgment comes curiosity, right? So why is that? Why is that a good thing to be proud of the bridges you're burning? And there's a lot of reasons. Um, you know, one is, hey, if we look back at history, there are good, there, we, we can trace the ideas that led to the really bad stuff, right? And so I can't blame pe people for saying, look, this is, this is a dumpster fire of a world right now. And I have a conviction that this is the right way. And I'm not going to waste my time with people who want to distract me from that conviction. I think there's something really noble and wonderful to that. I admire commitment and I admire um, advocacy, right? Like strong advocacy. We know that sometimes that's what it takes. The, the, the rub comes when in the moment, it is really hard to know who's right and wrong on everything. It's hard to know who's being recklessly self-righteous versus, oh, no, 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 no. This is totally, this is totally cool. And so, so because it's hard to know, we have to leave some of those doors open. Um, but at the same time, like, again, I think that I think that a healthy society contains many people who would say, may the bridges I've burned light my way and and would go in one direction very firmly, not wanting to talk to anyone else. But but if they are too big a proportion and there is not enough of another chunk of people who is trying, who is sitting at the edges, the porous boundaries of different communities and schools of thought, reaching out their hand to see, hey, do you want to come check out what we're doing? Hey, I'm kind of curious about you. If that layer is too thin, that's when it's a problem, right? So the mm -hmm. fact that somebody might say that in at least the political culture, may the bridges I've burned light my way, that's not so much the problem as it is adding it all up. If we have too much of that and not enough of the actual hanging together, that's not going to play out well. So I, you mentioned something that sparked my, it, it made me think of the article you wrote for greater good. <clears throat> Can I read the first couple paragraphs of this? Cause I sure. think this is really powerful. Yeah. <clears throat> I was attending a lecture called civil conversation in an angry age by philosopher, David Smith. And he offered a prescription for bridging divides that began with this question. Is it safe to assume all of us in this room are wrong about something right now? In Zoom squares, heads considered and nodded. I think so, because we've been wrong about so many things before, he continued. But there's a problem. We don't know what we're wrong about. 
And that simple observation of I'm wrong, I just don't know what about, should produce some humility, Smith said, some willingness to listen. Smith then asked his second question to help peel us apart from our opinion so we could look at them freshly. Which do you value more, the truth or your own beliefs? Because they're not synonymous. And, and I think that's incredibly powerful. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> which do you value more, the truth or your own beliefs? You know, the truth is the thing that we keep arguing about that, you know, the truth looks like this to me and like that to you. And so ah, I argue. But but conceptually, the truth is something different. The truth is, is it's it's an aspiration. It's an ambition. We know that there is a truth. We know and we're always looking for it. So, yeah. Which do you value more, but, the truth or your own beliefs? And so, if you value truth, uh, then me. you have to stay open. Good. I'm just. When Trump was in power, I kind of had this feeling like we were in a post-truth society. Mm. And the truth, and this is a judgment, so I'll Mm -hmm. just put that out there, that truth didn't seem to matter to a large percentage of our country. Mm -hmm. What do you do when that's the case? (sighs) Or do you even agree with that? Yeah, I'm trying to kind of... I'm trying to, it's a really good way to ask that question. It's a question that's, you know, come at a lot of people in a lot of different ways. Let me, like, I guess I'll tell you a quick story. So my dad, um, who, to whom Trump is like a personal hero, um, you know, he and I have talked around, around these themes before. Mm -hmm. And there's one way in which truth has come up that is surprising to me and that I couldn't really deny. And he, he was talking to me about how Trump is the one politician who says what he means. So one of the reasons my dad voted for Trump is because he looked around at the political landscape and all he saw was a bunch of spin doctors, just people just playing games, masquerading, charading, saying whatever they had to say, right? And here comes Trump who just isn't playing the games. So what what he's talking about is something related to truth, which is authenticity. This is a person who says Mm -hmm. what they mean, but that also is a kind of truth. It's related to truth. So I don't think that my dad doesn't respect truth. I think that my dad really respects the way that Trump says what he means. And that to him feels more honest. Mm -hmm. So, so it's also like, what do we mean by truth? It has a lot of dimensions. Now, that's not a reason for me to support Trump. No, thanks. Um, I am definitely way more on the side of people who don't lie on their way (laughs) to, to saying what they mean. I think that that's irresponsible and, it's incredible that it, that it became so commonplace. And I think that's why so many of us are hitting the panic button. Um, but like, maybe you've heard that quote. What is that quote? Oh, gosh, that people who don't support Trump take what he says literally. And people who do support Trump yes. take what he says figuratively mm-hmm. um, or something like that. And so anyway, like, like so many things, it's complicated. Yeah. And it, I think there's a, Little T truth and a big tree, big T truth. Right. Um, big T truth is more about reality and scientific discovery and mathematics mm-hmm. and maybe truisms about the human nature. Whereas little T truth is more about speaking authentically and from the heart, knowing mm-hmm. what you feel, knowing what you believe, that kind of thing. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize we're getting into the philosophy of language. Well, there you go. Right. Um, but it just, but it just <laughs> gets, because I've had these conversations with my dad, it is harder for me. I don't know. It's just harder for me to kind of talk in these 
I always have to stop and think like a couple levels deeper and then come back up and be like, okay, what do I mean? What do I mean? Right. And I know that that just, <laughs> it sort of makes it all more, <sighs> it gives you a headache, <laughs> but. <laughs> and yet it's very important to be able to have these kind of conversations as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's uh, interesting distinction, little T truth and big T truth. Um, but yeah, when I think of big T truth, it is that sort of need to make sure that we can have a collective search for truth and that there is something that to me, big T truth is, is somehow like it's a respect for facts and it's an honoring of what a fact is and how different facts can matter more to different people. But it's also including meaningfulness to people. Cause sometimes I think that we look at truth as if all it's made up of is facts and, and the facts are just numbers and figures and statistics and conclusions from scientific studies. But mm-mm. The truth of our own experience is also part of the truth. And the truth of our concerns is also part of the truth. So let's not let's not rule that out. Well, and I think that's one of the big reasons why people, half the population, got really upset at like Dr. Fauci or mm-hmm. science when COVID came around and the vaccines, because I think they perhaps didn't have a thorough understanding of what science is. I mean, science is a pursuit of the truth and it's mm-hmm. always open to interpretation and change based on the latest data. Right. And so it's an ongoing process and it can be slow and frustrating at times. And I think they were looking at science to be that big T truth and just say, here's what you need to do. Here's what it is. Mm-hmm. Here's what the vaccine will do. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have that information for a year plus. Yeah. That's what's tricky about science communication, right? Is it kind of goes both ways is people, people kind of come at it going, oh, you have the authority of expertise. And so you need to have the answers. And so I'm waiting for you to have the answers. And then when you tell me not to wear a mask and then later you're like, oh, never mind, wear a mask. I'm going to lose trust in you. And then, and then it, but it goes the other way. The scientists who claim, you know, and, and do have this incredible expertise and authority based on that expertise also have to speak with humility because it's like it's like that dance right you have to be confident but also make sure that you let people know that you're still just pursuing truth and this is a new disease and we're doing our best because then people will take your reversals as see see they never they never got this they're just trying to fool me and so those concerns are real and have to be contended with right um and, and you can't just you can't just put it in a box of ah forget it you know Let's not even worry about that. Like, no, no, we have to worry about that. How we communicate to each other about this collective search for truth, who claims authority, who claims expertise had better be humble. Well, and it also makes me think that one of my truisms, I guess, as I've gotten older is I I think that we are all deeply sensitive people. There's very few people that don't feel things deeply. Mm. And if that's true, I have tried <clears throat> to communicate as gently as possible to others mm. because I'm trying not to offend anyone and I'm trying not to get anyone. I don't want to make them defensive. Mm. So I'm always looking for ways to, how can I couch this so it can be heard? Right. And you've got to know your audience for that. You have to have some empathy and awareness, I think. Um, so let, let's get to the practical piece here because we only got about 10 minutes left. What practical tips do you have for approaching, let's say, family gatherings when you don't agree with your loved ones? Mm-hmm. Or when if you're engaging online with people who flame at you and they don't agree with you and they start calling you names? Yeah, let's start with that latter <clears throat> one. So engaging online with some with people and they're flaming at you and starting to call you names. If you're already at that point, 
I mean, maybe a hard thing to do is recognize that the space you're in is extremely unlikely to produce uh, understanding and good results because those spaces don't include our whole bodies, because they are usually not contained to just the people participating in the exchange. There's these invisible bystanders, you know, rooting for someone and wanting to score points. And like they're the audience at a wrestling match for all those reasons, getting into those kinds of flame wars online, it produces almost nothing of value. (laughs) It just doesn't. So if you're already there, well, gosh, you know, now you feel like your pride is on the line and you have to find some closure that's public. So you're not humiliated and that's tough. The best thing to do is not to get there in the first place. Uh, But if you are there, is there a way that you can increase containment, increase embodiment? What I mean by that is, can you send a direct message to that one person and say, Hey, can we talk about this offline? Can you pick up the phone? Is it someone, you know, Hey, you know, this thing going on on Facebook, you know, get laugh a little, just be like, can we talk about it here? So that's one. And then, um, I think your first, your, how did you construct the first half of that question? Um, what tips do you have for approaching family members or family gatherings when there's a political divide? Right. Um, so the first thing is talk to yourself. Uh, if you are, if you want to engage, can you engage with curiosity? Uh, would you engage with judgment? Um, now it's possible. Let's say that you have a really, you have a concern, like a deep one. This relative has hurt you. Uh, something about their beliefs has actually acted on you in a way that you need them to know. That's a different kind of conversation. That's a, that's not necessarily a curious conversation. That's something that you need to communicate. And that's a crucial conversation. It's a tricky one. Um, and you'll have to leverage your relationship and, and get them to see you, you know, as a loved one and say, hey, I really need to share this with you. So that's that's different. But let's say that you want to engage with a, a relative who you know has a very different belief that you don't like, but you haven't really talked about it. Um, or if you have, it's been a while and you haven't known how to bring it up again. In that situation, you know, first you have to do all these queries about the, re- the relationship and the trust that's there. But let's say that there's enough, right? And, and so then it becomes about buy-in, about communicating intent and getting buy-in. So where you would say, hey, you know, all this stuff in the news about Roe v. Wade and abortion. So I've been thinking about that a lot. And I recognize for myself that I have my opinions, but there's lots of other opinions. And this is not a simple issue at all. I think that you and I are pretty different on it. Would you be willing to to talk about it with me? Like, I, I actually would really love to understand your perspective better. And then if they say yes, then the next question is, okay, when? What What's a good time? Can I take you out to coffee? Can we get on the phone? And and then you've you've created a space where that can actually happen. Um, more likely, you know, you'll be tempted to. It just kind of comes up in the dinner table conversation. And in that case, you don't have to shut it down. You can still be curious. You know, you can say. Okay, like what? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That's that's really interesting. I'm thinking about a lot about that too. What um, what's ultimately the big concern for you? And then when they answer that, well, my big concern, you know, is 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 the baby's life. You know, not that's not a fetus; it's a baby. Or my concern is women. Like they can't live full lives. They don't have any freedom now if this goes away. Now you can have that conversation about values that we were talking about before. Yeah, I like it. It's almost like a soft startup um, that you would mm-hmm. use in a relationship, like a romantic relationship, which is, hey, honey, I've got something important to talk to you about. Is now a good time? Right. 
You're asking permission to have the conversation. Okay, when can we have it? Yep. Yep. And then, you know, you don't have to, you might be really nervous. Um, but but I guess one thing to remember is um, you you could choose to be purely curious in that first conversation. Just ask questions. It'll be tough because you'll have your inner dialogue and sometimes your inner dialogue will scream. Um, but But it's possible to just stay in that curious place. And then maybe the second conversation could be, Hey, can we talk about this again? I'd I'd love to, you know, if you're curious, I'd love to tell you how I see this very differently. Oh, yeah, okay, sure. And now you have that buy-in, right? Well, thank you for the tips. I, I appreciate it, and I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I'm also aware of time, so just in wrapping up, where can people get your book and refresh our memory of the name of the book? Right. The book is called I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Time. Uh, you can go to reclaimcuriosity.com uh, for all kinds of links to different, your favorite online bookshop or wherever, uh, or a bookstore near you, hopefully. And uh, yeah, check it out there. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Moni Guzman, M-O-N-I-G-U-Z-M-A-N. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your work. I really appreciate it. I'm a big fan and it was fantastic to have this time with you. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you for your questions. They've pulled me in new directions and that's the whole point. (laughs) And for those of you listening, that's it for this episode of The Evolved Caveman. If you liked or loved this episode, please remember to like, rate, review, and share with your friends. If you didn't like it, you don't have to do a damn thing. Thanks so much. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 